Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. And today, to mark Pride Month, we're going to be talking about the gender wars. Not the old-fashioned kind between men and women, but the new kind involving basic questions like, what is a woman? Is it an adult human female, or is it, as many progressives have come to fervently insist in recent years, anyone who simply announces to the world that I'm a woman? And with me to discuss the issue is a real live woman and someone who literally wrote the book on the subject, British journalist Helen Joyce, author of the 2021 bestseller, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. And as the title of that book suggests, Joyce, whose day job has been editor at The Economist magazine, sees this as a matter of belief versus fact. Specifically, she describes her preferred biologically rooted definition of who's a man and who's a woman as sex realism, while using the term sex denialism to describe the other side, which insists that what's important is self-declared gender identity, not biological reality. But we'll also be talking about all the other terms that get thrown around by both sides, like TERF, that's T-E-R-F, or Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, a term of abuse often hurled at women by trans activists who find all this discussion of biology to be transphobic. And trigger alert if you're one of those people who finds this kind of biologically grounded discussion to be invalidating to your identity or otherwise offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. But I'm guessing you already figured that out. Helen Joyce, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on. Now, I didn't realize this until I was just researching your recent doings, but you are on leave from The Economist? You were the, the UK editor. Yes, I was the Britain editor. That's right, as we call it, because uh, we, we're not allowed to say UK for some reason at The Economist. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll beat that out. Uh, I've been following your career for a couple of years now. Was there any kind of effort to to get you fired from The Economist? Internally, absolutely not. Externally, um, there were some, but they were quite cack-handed. And what you'll see, I'm sure you've seen this, is that if anybody shows any sort of weakness at the moment, it's like blood in the water in the shark circle. So if you apologize or right. you know, delete something or show any regret about publishing something, and my editor never did. You know, it started a few years ago. Um, some uh, Labour Party activists started doing a real Twitter storm bullshit thing, you know, asking The Economist about, you know, why do you have known transphobe Helen Joyce type thing? And the editor just ignored it, emailed me behind the scenes to say, don't pay any attention, don't respond. Then when um, a really poor quality journalist in this ridiculous online magazine called Daily Dot approached them for comment, she just gave them a comment along the lines of, you know, Helen Joyce is an excellent journalist and has our full support. That piece came out and it died a death, which is the way to deal with Twitter storms. The Guardian, they've had real dramas with at least one writer, if I remember correctly, got basically got shown the door because of their views on this issue. And then you hear these other dramas where very small, like activist organizations or local media will be hounded mercilessly. 
think Katie Herzog in uh, in Seattle. She was at a place called what was it called? The Stranger. Yeah, it's almost like the smaller the outfit, the more intense the campaign. Maybe because they know they can be more effective in their bullying? I think it's absolutely about how the organisation responds. So I spent a lot of the last few weeks listening to an online employment tribunal in the case of Alison Bailey, who's a barrister here in the UK, as you call it. And she is taking a case against her chambers, Garden Court Chambers and Stonewall, which is an activist organisation that does trans things. And sorry, chambers? It's like a collective of barristers, the way it works here. So you're not an employee, but you're covered by employment law, like a freelancer. It's like a law firm type? Yeah, like a collective of lawyers. Like I now know more than I've wanted to about how barristers tout for work here in the UK. But basically what happened, Alison, who's a lesbian, was one of the people backing the LGB Alliance's foundation, which is a new-ish charity that specifically advocates for people who are same-sex attracted or bisexual, which Stonewall used to, but it's now very trans. And once you start doing trans stuff, you can't advocate for same-sex attraction anymore because you don't even accept sex as a meaningful term. On the conceit that you're attracted to a person's inwardly felt gender identity. Exactly, exactly. So they end up being very homophobic, like complaining that lesbians won't sleep with trans women. And uh, Alison tweeted about this, and then a bunch of people complained to her employer. And I listened to hours of people trying to defend two years after the fact putting out stupid statements in response to trolls called idiotic things, calling Alison a transphobe and people just being bumped into responding poorly in ways that showed that they think that Alison is a bigot for saying lesbians don't sleep with people with dicks. I've been following your newsletter, uh, some of the free content and very recently became a paid subscriber to get the the paid content. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I it's I to prepare for this interview, I, uh, I had to ante up, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there was one post, I think her name was Lucy Massoud, if I'm pronouncing that name correctly. That's right, I mean, this is yeah. more, I think Alison Bailey is, is, is a well-known figure in the UK, uh, but she happens to be a black woman. Maybe because of some of the elements of her background, she's been a particularly, I would say, effective, but also beleaguered supporter of sex-based rights. But Lucy Massoud, from what I, sounds of it, just sort of an ordinary person who was a former firefighter who was on a dating app, right? Yeah, yeah. So I know Lucy in person, but uh, when I was looking around and discovering that um, dating apps don't allow you now to say that you're looking for somebody who's male or female. But that's kind of important for many people. Many. <laughs> by, by, by many people, I mean like all people. That's yeah. like very important. Absolutely. But the thing is, it just, it contradicts the ideology. I mean, it, it's the classic, it's the classic example of the when ideology meets reality of the subtitle of my book. You know, you, on one side, you've got somebody saying something that sounds nice, which is people can identify as who they are and nobody knows who you truly are except yourself. And then on the other side, you've got somebody who says, I only sleep with female people. And then you've got a male person who says, but I feel like I'm female. And that female person is invalidating his gender identity. So how did Lucy Massoud invalidate people and literally destroy their humanity? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, uh, Lucy has a very interesting background. Um, when I tweeted, you know, a couple of years ago when I was writing the book, I said, you know, has anyone got any stories about this? And Lucy got in touch with me then. So she talked to me by Zoom and then afterwards I met her. So she was actually um, about 21 years ago now. There was an awful nail bombing in a pub in Soho, which was the gay district in London. Um, the Admiral Duncan pub had a nail bomb put in it by um, a homophobic terrorist and it killed and injured a lot of people. And Lucy worked next door. She worked in the rental agency next door and her girlfriend was in the, worked in the pub. And there's a picture, Lucy's shown it to me, of the two of them, 
you know, covered in blood, her, her girlfriend badly injured, carrying people out. And she became very active in LGB things then. You know, she put up posters saying you can't bomb us back into the closet and things like this. And she went on. She stopped being a firefighter. She actually became a barrister and she now works in family law. And in 2020, she was a, a relationship broke up and she joined a bunch of dating apps and discovered there's no way of saying woman seeking women without men who call themselves women regarding themselves as entitled to, to get in touch with you. You can't not see those profiles. You can't block them. You can't block trans. You can't block male. You can't block anything like that. You have, you know, if you're a woman seeking women, you're going to see about a third or a fourth, she said. The result isn't going to be that lesbians end up successfully dating trans people. It's going to be that these people go out maybe on some kind of mortifying date and everyone wastes their time. I mean, mostly I would say that. So Lucy tried to sort of put into something that she just meant females. So one of the apps asks you quirky questions and the idea is it just sends them to you and you answer them to keep engagement up and to give people an idea what sort of person you are. And the question she was asked was to finish the sentence, all I ask is that you. And she said, uh, don't fret about, you know, something like don't fret about me being on time, like Love Island and are a biological female. And that got her banned for life for transphobia. Well, the Love Island thing is a problematic for me. It's a bit, a bit of a killer, isn't it? I would agree on that. Um, and I mean, timekeeping is also something that's better to say up front. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, I mean, the question, a lot of Alison Bailey's hearing um, hinged on whether this was coercive. I mean, if you're allowed to just say, sorry, you're the sort of woman, you know, as Ricky Gervais called it, you know, the new sort of woman, the one with cock and balls. If you're allowed to say that, then fine. But in a lot of lesbian spaces now, there isn't really any way to say it. You can't say, look, you're a lovely woman in every respect, except, you know, my sexual orientation. And you have to try and, and get yourself out of this somehow. And, you know, you will get called transphobic in places like students, student unions. So it is quite coercive. It's inherently coercive as an idea, actually, that blokes can put themselves in front of lesbians. I mean, this is this is conversion therapy. Here in Canada, we actually just had an anti-conversion therapy bill pass at the federal level. Every reasonable person realizes that conversion therapy, in the sense the term was meant until about 15 minutes ago, which is trying to force gay people to act straight. That's horrible practice. Uh, that term has now sort of been co-opted by gender activists who insist that any deviation from reflexive affirmation of trans person's self-declared identity, that that's conversion therapy. Whereas, as you say, it may be closer to the truth to say the, the real gender-based conversion therapy is male-bodied people essentially telling lesbians, you know you want it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I mean, I've pointed this out on Twitter that some of this rhetoric, which can get really vulgar, it's, you know, suck my big trans dick type stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, in in in, um, in Alison's case, it was cotton sealing, which was an invention of a delightful trans activist who is indeed Canadian, Morgan Page. One of our exports. Well, she didn't invent it, actually. She took it up. Yes, one of your exports. And that refers to a woman's underwear. Yeah, specifically a lesbian's underwear. Yeah, so, it, and it holds trans women back in the same way that the glass ceiling holds women back in the workplace is the idea. It's a barrier to be broken through, like it explicitly frames it that way. I'm old enough to remember going to university in the 1990s when you had guys in, in fraternities who would say to women who they thought were lesbians or they suspect were lesbians because that's the only explanation for turning down their sexual advances, uh, sort of, well, you know you want it and just give it a try and this is good for what ails you. 
that kind of rhetoric if a woman's just open-minded she'll she'll just love straight sex that yeah. this guy had in mind that's weirdly become a kind of progressive calling card now i right? mean not kind of literally that's sick yeah it's, it's really sick i mean it is genuinely conversion therapy and it is also the other thing it reminded me of is this pickup artist thing right you know these workshops that men are meant to be able to go on where you learn to you know get any woman to sleep with you type thing and a lot of it is about um turning no into yes in ways that are questionably moral shall we say you know wearing her down the thing about those workshops is the guys who run them always seem to end up in jail yeah i know it's a whole very suspect thing i mean it's kind of, i don't think it works so i think it's the same sort of person as um you know as a pyramid scheme this kind of man has always been around in every yeah. society in every age it's just really weird to see them become <laughs> like moral representatives of purportedly progressive cause. I have a theory about that, which is that um, the, in the upside down world of gender, where, you know, men are women, you know, gay means straight, everything's back to front. Um, and in particular, a white man can be the world's most oppressed person if he gives himself a, a special identity. And, and then that allows that man to use both his own personal capital, like the fact that he's always been somebody who's been, you know, to, to whatever extent you believe it's nature or nurture, that's somebody who's not normally very backward about you know, saying what he wants and, you know, all that sort of thing. And he may have been privately educated and et cetera, et cetera. So you've got someone with inverted commas privilege, but that person is now able to hijack all the new apparatus that was set up specifically to help the other sort of people, the people who aren't like that, to have a fair shot against said white males. So it's somebody who's got double privilege now. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a white heterosexual man who's able to be the most oppressed person in society. And there's nobody can say anything to somebody like that. I do notice that a lot of these newly announced non-binary social justice champions, a lot of them have hyphenated last names. I think a lot of it is displaced depression, anxiety. And I think it's a natural phenomenon that people look for a label for these sentiments. Yes, and a label that offers you the, the hope of an immediate and complete cure as well. One interesting statistic I saw, I did a big piece on Haverford College, and they did a student survey. What was really interesting is the students who self-identified as non-binary actually had much poorer mental health than the students who self-identified as trans. Right. Which I found really interesting, because if transphobia were at the root of this, you'd expect that students who are outright trans, they, they would be the most afflicted, whereas non-binary would be somewhere in the middle. But I think if you do genuinely suffer from gender dysphoria, obviously that's, that's something you, that's a challenge you deal with. And there is real transphobia in society sometimes. But maybe some of the students who are non-binary, which is this very vaguely defined condition, there's a self-selection there because those are the students who are simply just, they don't have gender dysphoria. They're just picking a label that describes being depressed. Yeah, and I think as well as depressed, um, it captures feeling ill at ease or out of place and dissociated from your body. We're all gender non-conforming. I mean, that's yeah. the thing about gender non-conforming. None of us. Yeah, none of us is a walking Barbie doll or G.I. Joe in your case, although you're very nearly there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Subject for another episode, I guess. But... <laughs> so let me talk about your book, because sometimes your book gets lumped in with Abigail Schreier's book and Deborah So, who's a Canadian. I actually think that does both books a disservice. Abigail, and she's been on the show, she talks a lot about her concerns, her well-grounded concerns about children, uh, girls in particular. What I liked about your book, and maybe you could comment on this, is you were very honest about the social instincts we all have. And, and you said something very honest. You said maybe five, ten years ago, all of us wanted to be polite. And so when there were people in society who, who had gender dysphoria, Many of us, certainly including me, and I think including you, as you say in the book, 
we wanted to do the right thing. We wanted to be polite. What was the term you used? You said it was an occasional courtesy. Yeah. For, for, it's accommodating a very rare, very specific situation. Right. And, you know, for those people, like an analogy will be witness protection. I'm a bit afraid that people think that I mean that trans people are criminals. I don't mean that at all. Of course, witness protection is often for totally innocent people. The point of it is that, you know, you are creating a social lie when you put someone in witness protection, but you're doing it for a very good reason. And sometimes the person you're putting in witness protection is actually dangerous, but you still do it because you think the greater good. But it's just a really, really occasional thing. I mean, the state doesn't go around the place giving everybody every background story they want. You just accommodate these very rare situations on an ad hoc basis. And that's what people thought they were doing. I saw a statistic. Female identified male body prisoners, I think it was in British prisons, an astonishing number had been convicted of sexual crimes. I can't imagine that 10 or 15 years ago, when this movement started gaining traction, that certainly the women who supported this movement thought that the results of, you call it an occasional courtesy, that it would extend to this level that a female prisoner who objects to sharing a cell with somebody who has a penis, that that person would be labeled a transphobe. And yet here we are. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that once you move away from saying, look, this person is still a man, which is what you had to sign saying you understood if you wanted to get gender surgery here in the UK in the 1970s or 80s. You know, you had to sign a piece of paper saying, I understand that it's not possible to change people's sex. I understand I'm not being turned really into a woman. And I've been, you know, these people have been very carefully assessed and it was being done, you know, rightly or wrongly, but I think in some cases rightly, to help people live more comfortable lives because they were having such difficulties. I don't think they ever thought through the consequences for other people. I know that the doctors didn't think through the consequences for women because what they told the men when they were doing the assessment, those men had to do what was called the real life test, which meant living a year or two as if you were a woman. Specifically, that meant using the women's toilets and changing rooms and seeing if you could get away with it. Um, so that was women being used as a diagnostic test without thinking, well, why do we want women's changing rooms? I mean, it's not so that men can come in and see if they either terrorize us or confuse us into saying nothing, you know? So you were kind of the canaries in the bathroom. If you reacted negatively to this, it's the equivalent of like some sort of litmus test turning blue. It was exactly that. And it, and worse than that, really, I don't think women ever would react negatively to it because you're terrified. You just get out as fast as you can, you know? But if you are half dressed and some bloke comes into the changing rooms and he's wearing a wig and makeup and you know nail polish and things, you know it's a bloke because that's not what makes somebody look like a woman. I mean, I'm not saying they were doing anything wrong. Their doctors told them they had to do this. The fact is it's terrifying for the other women in the changing room, but they're not going to say, hang on, mate, you're a bloke. They're going to just, uh, you know, go like freeze, be as quiet as they can, get out as fast as they can. And then that man can go back to his doctor and say, yep, worked, nobody said anything. Um, but anyway, it was a very small number. Most of us just didn't come across somebody like that. So these issues were just sort of dealt with in the gender clinic and, and without the doctors ever having either the right or thinking through the consequences for everybody. And then that became codified in law and then it became a right to do it and without any surgery, without anything, you know. Now, surgery doesn't change people's sex, but at least it limits the numbers. But once you've got rid of the surgery, it's just anyone can do it. And now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So the pandemic is ending and maybe you're one of the many people who expected that as soon as things got back to normal, you'd be feeling back to normal too. If not, it could be because you've gotten burned out without even knowing it these last few years. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment or fatigue. 
And more generally, it can include no longer feeling as much joy or satisfaction in the things that you usually love doing, such as, oh, I don't know, writing or podcasting. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. We're having this discussion at what might be called an inflection point in the debate because I think for a few years now, there have been people banging their head against the wall, most of them uh, women, I should say, and, and saying, you know, has society gone mad? When will we regain some sense of balance in this debate? And there are signs that has happened, certainly in the UK, but even in the United States, as we're having this conversation, we're talking on a Tuesday, on the Sunday, the New York Times, A1, it was an article about Leah Thomas, the swimmer uh, at Penn in the United States, transgender swimmer who <laughs> dominated collegiate competition. And I was expecting this New York Times article to be like, you know, the martyrdom of Leah or um, Sports Illustrated did a quite fawning treatment. Yes. The article was shockingly sensible. Um, the the author was extremely well informed, interviewed Martina Navratilova, who's like queen turf when it comes to this stuff. You know, There's a great quote from Martina saying, I beat people taller than me, shorter than me, heavier than me, lighter than me. But they were all women, and if I played men, they would have destroyed me, because men and women are different. Most of the article was devoted to, to legitimate science, as opposed to ACLU people just shouting slogans. I assume you read that piece. I did, yeah. Did, did, that, did that surprise you? Yeah, very much. And it quoted Carol Hooven, who's the author of um, Testosterone, this wonderful book on the hormone that more than any other drives these differences, in particular sporting differences. Testosterone is like a one-way um, it's like a lobster pot, you know, you go through a, through testosterone and male puberty and you can't go back out. You can't undo the things it does. It's not like if you go off testosterone for a year, which is what a lot of these athletic regimens require. Yeah. It's not like, oh, look, I shrank two feet and yeah. my muscles. Yeah, I mean, it does place. do something. The main thing that it does that's noticeable in sporting terms is it lowers your hemoglobin levels. And that's not meaningless. But you still have the musculoskeletal development that yes. originates from... Yeah. yeah, and you've got the bigger heart, you've got the greater blood volume, you've got the stronger bones, all of those sorts of things. And if you train, you can probably keep the muscles up too. Look at me, I'm a god. I mean, this is what <laughs> testosterone does I to I mean, you, you know, you laugh, but the thing is that in our... Um, you know, very desk bound culture. I think a lot of people aren't aware of how big sex differences are. I certainly wasn't aware how right. big they were under the hood until I looked into it for my book. And I think one of the most striking things is um, you know, if you arm wrestle, like 99% of men can beat 99% of women. Like the overlap is that tiny. And in a test of punching power, um, which they did on untrained people. So this wasn't any women who do martial arts, but it was it was just untrained people. Every single man, and this is a range of ages and training, every single man was stronger than every single woman. They didn't overlap at all. So here in Canada, you know, we're, we're mad for hockey, right? We, we have an outstanding women's hockey team. Canada and the United States, uh, women's hockey teams regularly vie for the gold medal at the Winter Olympics. The Canadian female team trains by playing 16-year-old boys. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, there's this thing that happens when you're about 14. Wham, if you've got a son... And it's happened to your, your son. You see, it's like it's like a fast forward of a tree growing or something. Oh, I saw it with my daughters. 
My middle daughter loves soccer. When she was eight or nine, ten even, uh, she played in a co-ed league, and it was fairly even. And then I remember the next year or two I brought her, and it was, the boys were on another level. They weren't even 14, I think, just by, by 12, 13, they just, they were bigger, stronger, and they were just, like, more aggressive. And, and, and then I sometimes I read this stuff on the internet by people who are gender ideology enthusiasts, shall we say, and it kind of boils down to, well, these women just have to try harder and stop internalizing uh, sexist stereotypes. I know, and as a friend of mine who's a scientist and who likes a lot of sport, he said to me, okay, two things I always want to ask these people. Why is it that the women in, for example, weightlifting are so very much lazier than the women in, say, swimming? I mean, the difference in weightlifting is 50% and the difference in swimming is 10%, right? And two, like this, this framing suggests, I've even seen this written in these idiotic threads that go viral on Twitter. They say that the reason for separate sporting events for women is so that men aren't humiliated by being beaten by women. Well, if that's the case... Why don't these women train a bit harder and put in man-beating times in women's races? Like, these things are so stupid that it's hard to believe that there are any adults who believe them. But I think what happened is people do it step by step, and at some point you become intellectually committed, and it's really hard to get back out. So you started with being kind. You started with being a bit sophisticated, like, you know, you're not so basic that you think it's just about you know what's in your pants and of course it's not just what's in your pants it's ridiculous the idea that it's just your genitals it's every cell of your body it's everything and anyway you know that's basic to say it's about bodies so they have this fancy idea of a gender identity and it feels sophisticated and it allows women to step away from what can feel quite embarrassing which is to be the physically weaker species um, half of the species it's not great I don't like it I don't like that we're the half that can be raped and that we're the half that can be beaten up with a fair amount of ease if I could wave a magic wand, I'd make us as strong as men, but I can't. So I accept reality. So, yeah, these, these things go around, I think, because people are unimaginative, sit at their desks, start down a path that they don't see where it ends. I mean, I think that's what you said when you said like 10 or 15 years ago, people wouldn't have thought they'd be putting rapists in women's jails. But the thing is that once you say that being a man or a woman isn't just a question of whether you're male or female, this is where you end up inexorably. One... Difficult question, I think. And I don't even know what terms. I mean, obviously, I, sometimes I say turf in an ironic way. It's all right. So does everybody here. It's just also a funny word. Like it just. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can just say I'm going out turfing. We did a spot of light turfing this evening, you know, and myself and my turfy buddies, you know. Ontario's vanity license program. I, did, I was just idly searching whether so turfy was available. El turfo and <laughs> I'm turfing. Oh, which, by the way, the New York Times article called it out as a term of abuse. And that was one of the critiques. There were people who, well, that was one of their prime complaints about it, is they like to use turf as a term of abuse without acknowledging that it's a term of abuse. And they were upset that the New York Times had called out this concern. Yeah, it's, it's Schrodinger's turf. You know, if they want to say it, it's not a term of abuse. And if you want to say it, you're, you're using a term of abuse. Schrodinger's turf. I'm like, okay, <laughs> so, so here's, here's, here's a very serious question. When you have a beleaguered movement, you, you take your allies where you find them. And I think at least in the United States, I think less so in Britain, less so in the UK, I should say. In the United States, the the allies for the, I think gender critical is the polite term for turf, but in the, the progressive liberal gender critical movement, of which I think maybe you're, you're part, their allies consisted in large part of Republican, red state, conservatives. And there was this uneasy thing where, you know, you'd get these these very liberal feminists who would appear 
at, for instance, like the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., a conservative place, because that was sort of the only place with any kind of influence that would would platform these people. But now you have this awkward situation where highly conservative states have passed laws which often do go too far, in my view. Yeah. Like, genuinely, well, the word transphobic is loaded, but like they bar any kind of transition therapy, even for teenagers who it's not rapid onset gender dysphoria it's like real gender dysphoria and they can profit from from getting treatment in this regard and these laws prohibited outright can you tell me a little bit about how you manage that where i mean you have to be careful who your enemies are you have to be careful who your allies are like how do you manage this thing where some of the people who are some of the staunchest supporters of the gender critical movement have conservative ideologies that that maybe go way too far for for people like you and One me. One thing I would start by saying is I don't think that any children should be given the things that are called gender medicine in America. I, I, I don't make this distinction between kids who've got long-standing gender dysphoria and others. I mean, we know that children with deep, long-standing gender dysphoria do do still also often uh, lose it uh, in their teens. And these medicines. Um, when taken early enough, they turn people into eunuchs. They sterilize them. They completely, as in you know, not just reversible it's not infertility it's sterility they make them sexually dysfunctional as well so these are going to be people who are never going to have an orgasm i don't think that's something anybody should do to children under any circumstances except to literally save their lives from cancer that's it so i don't think those laws go too far i think it's a i don't think it's the right place i don't think laws about what medicine does are the right thing but i see why those states are doing it it's because doctors are doing absolutely horrendous things and um, i'm also not left a left winger and never have been I don't have a problem with talking to people who are conservative, people who are religious, because I don't feel myself at odds with them. I don't like the anti-gay, anti-feminist, conservative in the sense of conservative gender roles. These people are not my allies. But what I personally would say, and I know that different people come down at different points in this, is I don't think of myself as gender critical or any of those things anymore. I think I'm a sex realist. I think that my enemies are the people who are sex denialists. So if someone is a sex realist, then on that, at least we agree. If that person then believes that sex implies a bunch of things that I don't think it does about, you know, women staying in the home or, you know, men being natural leaders, we part ways at that point. But anyone who understands that humans are mammals and come in two sexes that cannot be changed and that has consequences, then so far we are fellow travelers. One sign to me that the the gender critical movement is, is gaining traction is that it's successful enough to schism. A, people fighting about tactics, how militant to be, and B, personalities and, and who has the right to fight for the movement. Because I know that there are feminists who've been, been fighting for this kind of stuff for many, many years, and then there'll be some journalist who just sort of hops. Oh, well, I mean, that was me. I swanned in. Well, yeah, that was you a couple of years yeah. ago, but you know, now uh, you're, I think you're in your stripes. Oh, uh, I don't know. I think there's people who've been going at this since the mid 2000s. I mean, one thing you have to remember is that this is more extreme in feminist movements um, than it would be in other movements for a few reasons. You mean the, the schisming? Yeah. And, and, and sort of the jostling. And I think part of the reason is that it's a bunch of really brilliant women who, if they were men, would be running the world. Like you look at people and you think, God, you'd be the CEO of a multinational, you know, if you weren't a woman, if you hadn't had, you know, your background and looking after kids and then looking after parents and whatever. So you've got a lot of really brilliant women and you also have no money 
because one of the things you really notice in this is how little money and how little control of money women have. Wait, but wait a second. I thought the evangelicals were sending you hundreds of millions of dollars oh, to have your, your meetups in the basements so, of churches and stuff. Everybody, everybody here in this movement is scraping around for 50 quid for this and 100 quid for that. You know, it's really, really, really tough. It's all on small donations. The various crowdfunding things, you know, the average sizes of donations are really and I'm small. Jo- I, I'm joking about the evangelical thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're joking, yeah, but it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and lot, most of the work is completely unpaid. You know, there's only a few people who are earning any money out of this as a salary of any sort. So you've got no money. You've got, you know, casual disdain and disrespect from politicians. And you've got a lot of great people and, you know, people who are not backward about saying that they know that they're good and that they've got good ideas. So people do keep, I suppose, having individual falling outs And then there's also, I think there's some specifics about this issue, for example, language. So how politic do you want to be with your language? If you want to try and get a book published or you want to try and get something into the mainstream media, you're going to have to do a bit of, you know, preferred pronouns. And you may get away with saying a trans woman is male. You won't get away with saying a trans woman is a man. But then you've got people who feel all of that is just pandering and that's what's got us where we are. And it's hard to say it isn't what got us where we are, because look where we are. You know, we gave an inch and they took 10,000 miles. So, you know, there are really legitimate disagreements. And then, of course, there is also this thing of the people who labored in the wilderness and for whom this is part of their feminist activism. So they're people who would, for example, campaign against domestic violence or, you know, for women in prison or something. Of which this of which this is an extrapolation. Exactly. But, you know, so a lot of people who weren't don't call themselves feminists, particularly weren't in all in any way feminist activist. And I certainly called myself a feminist, but I wasn't an activist. We came into this because it's mad and because we saw it starting to harm children and harming us. And then there's women. I mean, actually, the Vancouver rape relief people that I met when I was in Vancouver, um, you know, they were really nice and they showed me around and they chatted to me. But, you know, they had this slight it's, it's almost like pitying, um, you know, one of them, and I use the quote in the book, she said, you know, for us, this is just, this is just male entitlement. It's just the same. So if I can just say something about the Vancouver rape relief case, because they were fighting this before it was a thing. Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, there was a natal male person who wanted to be like a rape counselor or a volunteer. Of That's something. right. A peer counselor, a peer to peer counselor, which is and, how and they this work. wasn't like two years ago or three years ago. This was a long time ago. Mid-2000s, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, I think they said no. They did, but yeah. This person went to court and it, it turned into something, even even by today's standards, it was very ugly. Like I think at one point a rat was nailed to the door of this place. That's right. That, and yeah. more recently, I think Vancouver City Council actually stripped funding from these women running a rape relief center. I mean, to me, this is when I knew it descended into madness, is that funding was being taken away from a rape relief center based on the protestations of, of somebody born looking like me. That, to me, was, this, okay, this is, this is a cult. I call these people men now, unless I absolutely am forced not to. We are talking about a man who was so determined to force his way into a rape crisis center that he went through, I think it was eight or nine years of legal battles and tried to bankrupt a rape crisis center. The women are saying they don't want you. What is wrong with you? (laughs) What is wrong with you that you're forcing your way in on raped women? It's the most disgusting thing. And this is why I use the word man. Like if you say male-bodied or you say trans woman, somebody is not very imaginative. I've come to realise belatedly that some people are less good at picturing what you're talking about while you're talking. And also that some people don't feel things so viscerally. So in the Alison Bailey hearing, um, there were hours of discussion about the bloody cotton ceiling. And I, I mean, I'm sorry if this is a bit graphic, but you know, I'm sitting there with my legs crossed. 
because I can't help but physically on my body feel that what they're talking about force those lesbian bitches to open their legs and take their knickers off so they can be penetrated. That is what they are talking about. In the name of social justice. In the name of social justice. I mean, this was being compared to the struggles of black South Africans during apartheid, you know. So, but, but I realized that I think that the woman who was defending this, the woman who had investigated Alison Bailey, another barrister who worked for the Power Standards Board, she spent hours fluently comparing lesbians who won't have male partners to blacks fighting apartheid to women fighting the glass ceiling. And she again and again said it wasn't coercive right. with every appearance of truth, like every appearance that she meant it. I think she has to be living in a wholly abstract world of forces and not bodies. And I think she doesn't visualize things or feel them viscerally because I was so uncomfortable listening to this and I'm not even lesbian. A few weeks back, there was Supreme Court nominee who is now on the Supreme Court in the United States uh, was famously asked to define the word woman, and and her response was, I'm not a biologist. Yeah, I saw that. Which was <laughs> kind of r- ridiculous. But on the other hand, this is one of the things about this debate, is if you ask me to define a, a woman, or to define a man, or to define like a rock, or to define a piece of wood, I don't know how to define it. Well, you know, wood is part of a tree and rock is it's this mineral thing. Is I don't know. Like, I mean, it's I, but I know it when I see it. When people ask you to find a woman, what do you say? I just say you were you were conceived female and you didn't you didn't die before you grow conceived up. Conceived female and you didn't die. <laughs> okay. And the thing is, female and male are not like um, rock, chair, stone. They're incredibly well defined. They're reproductive pathways that have evolved. Never the twain shall meet on being male or female. There are animals that have parts of both, but a body part that is male cannot be female and vice versa. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe you know that earthworms are hermaphrodites, like they have both parts. Well, but that's okay. But whenever I see this debate, it's like, well, yeah, but there's this species of fungus in Mongolia that just, you know. Yeah, so fungi aren't male and female, or at least some of them aren't. But I mean, all animals apart from bacteria and some fungi. But clownfish, but clownfish. Yeah, so, so we know when they're being male and when they're being female. Right. The male is directed towards the production of small gametes. So that's sperm or pollen in plants. And female is directed towards the production of large gametes. So in, in mammals, individuals are male and female. All my body parts are female because evolution directed my whole body plan towards the production of eggs. And you're male because evolution directed your whole body. That's your shoulders, your brain, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your hip joints, everything towards the production of small gametes. But some plants, like um, they make both uh, both gametes. So the different parts are male and female. But those words never overlap. There's no possibility for something male to be female. To your knowledge, is there any human being who has produced both sperm and eggs? No. No, there's, there, there are these things called intersex conditions, which is a really shit label for something. It's properly called a difference or disorder of sex development. And most of these are really, really clear whether the person is male or female. It's usually somebody who um, is just clearly male or female, but their, their genitalia are maybe a bit unusual. Occasionally, it's somebody whose body tries to develop along one of the developmental pathways, even though their genes match the other. And that's always because of genetic anomalies. And then the, the rarest are that you have um, sort of malformed um, tissue that's called ovotestes, which has some ovarian material and some testicular material. And you would usually be infertile, but if you're fertile, it'll be one or the other. So yes, yeah, so really male and female are just incredibly well-defined and they're reproductive. So what you're saying is sex doesn't exist and we're all on a spectrum? <laughs> to so, paraphrase. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, so uh, one last question. Your Twitter 
H Joyce Gender. It's your Twitter handle. Yeah. Uh, this is today. So this is uh, May 31. You tweeted this thing. It, you can't make this up, right? So you're quoting somebody else. It's a passage from this impenetrable <laughs> gender jargon. And I'm just going to read this quote. Mia identifies as transgender. Okay. Non-binary. Okay. Gender fae. That's F-A-E. Mm, not sure. Asexual. Okay. Demi-romantic and, oh, I didn't even look this one up, Neptunic. <laughs> okay, so, so I, there's like four words that I don't get, but what is Neptunic? But also like after researching this book, do you ever get stumped? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a turfy chat. <laughs> we shared this piece and everyone said, what's Neptunic? And there was somebody who had done art, art history was saying like, you know, the guy who's riding the waves with the trident. And I said confidently and persuaded everybody else that I was probably right, that this might be a fancy way of saying gender fluid because it's like watery. So somebody went to Urban Dictionary and looked it up and it means it's actually a sexual attraction, not, not a... Uh, not an identity as such and it's being attracted to if I remember correctly female and non-binary people only which is a bit special given that non-binary people can be male or female okay but that sounds remarkably like straight and maybe bisexual like yeah you'll kiss I, you'll kiss the girls when the boys are looking or something I don't know so I looked up some of these words gender fey you looked up didn't you I couldn't be bothered I looked up gender fey because I, I was kind of interested how to, how to pronounce it but it's, they're all defined in reference to each other like Mia gender, anyone on the male side of the via binary spectrum. And you're like, what? Okay, wait, <laughs> now I have to look up via binary. You don't, you So don't. then I looked up via binary and it's, okay, so I'm looking at via binary and it's a term from the alley binary system. You, wait a sec, what's alley binary? <laughs> so then I go to alley binary, I'm like four words deep and it refers to a system of terms used to describe how different non-binary people have different relationships to the gender binary, which could like describe any human in the universe. There's a whole subculture of people. This is like a thing for them. It's like how well, many... it's like stamp collecting. No, it's not because stamps are amazing. And this is like <laughs> how many non-binary angels can dance on the head of a gender fay pin. Like it's is it possible there are people who just love arcane typology and gender is kind of just an excuse for this kind of sesquipedalian wordplay like it you all like the typology yeah. becomes more important than the actual blue hair and the dating app <laughs> so, so i think part of it is definitely to, to to own the boomers like the fact that you and i are having this conversation is definitely part of the fun for somebody who's 2021 20, so we, we're not getting it so that's fun for them like things the grown-ups don't get is great so it's a bit like music it's a bit like you know your relative ranking of the cure and something else, you know, I mean, I just was never so into music that I was into these specific descriptions of what your, your musical style was. So I think there's a bit right. of that. And then a bit of this is just, it's so divorced from reality that there's nowhere to stop. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't think stamp collecting is fun, but stamps are real things. Oh no, stamps are amazing. You can't, you can't get very far, you know, away from reality with them. Once you start this bullshit, there's nowhere to stop because you can be anything gender, gender. I saw an article, the New York Times ran an article a while ago in which they sat in on a gender consult for a teenage girl who wanted to take testosterone. And she quite seriously said, and this was quoted as if it was a serious statement, that her gender um, had something of the, um, it was, it was kind of like raccoon, kind of messy. <laughs> yes, know? I've seen that. I've seen that. But this, to me, is the clearest thing that as much as these people say they hate J.K. Rowling, they are creatures of the Harry Potter universe, and they all think they have a Patronus inside yeah. them. 
Like I think Hermione's was was it an otter or something? Yeah, but it's it's more than that. It's it's the fact that it's detached from anything. Right. Like there's no rules. Anything could be a gender. You could have sideboard gender or, you know. Oh, that's a cool one. You know, I just looked at your sideboard when I said that. Oh, I thought you said cyborg. I thought you said cyborg. Oh, yeah, that's a cool one. That's very cool. Much too it's cool. much cooler than sideboard. But then I have to say, and I think that inside these things, there's often something quite sad hiding as well. And this brings us back to your point about mental illness. So they're generally a mixture of identity and sexuality, and often they will say grey sexual or asexual or demi-something, demi-romantic, right. demisexual. Yeah. What these mean is they're meant to mean something like I'm not horny all the time. Like most of us aren't horny all the time, except for boys between about 13 and 17. But anyway, and I'm like, well, that's because you're quite detached from your body. You don't know who you are. You don't ha- you don't feel yourself fully and wholly and completely. You don't react to other people as fleshly beings who turn you on or don't. You don't know what you like. And in particular, if you bought the gender bullshit wholesale, you're going to have to treat some male people as female and some female people as male. And you're going to have to pretend that you find some people sexy that you don't. And that's quite sad. You think that you're asexual, whereas actually you just haven't discovered that you're just a straightforward, vanilla, heterosexual girl, or that you're just a flaming queer who only likes boys, and that's that. Boring. Yeah, but you don't know it about yourself, so you say that you're grey sexual or asexual or demi-romantic. And so those words for me, grey, a, and demi, are the sign of something sad. Yeah, although the cyborg sexual thing is mildly turning me on. That's really quite sad too. I may have to spin that off into a, a separate merchandise category. I think it's that different sort of sad. It's the porn type of sad. You're onto something with the music. Because I remember when I was in grade 10, and some guy said he was into like industrial goth metal. The next day, he'd come in and say, I'm now into industrial goth metal from Berlin. Like they keep schisming into more arcane subcategories. Because you're trying to define yourself really exactly, like a tribe of one. But personality, I mean, is that where this ends? Where where there's seven billion genders? Yeah, but they're very boring, shitty ones. I mean, I was, I was really little when I stopped reorganizing my books from least favorite to most favorite and trying to agonize about, you know, where exactly Tolkien went in that. But it has got that instinct, doesn't it, of... Oh, am I demisexual or am I asexual or am I grey sexual or am I demi-semi-hemisexual? Or, you know. I got to say, one of the terms that I learned in this thread uh, is, is really useful. I'm going to find it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where gender. W-E-R gender. Where gender, which I thought was like a werewolf thing. That's what I'd have guessed. Well, I, yeah. And I mean, there is sort of like Lupin from Harry Potter, right? The lycanthropy thing. But no, yeah. it's more boring than that. It's another word for binary men, male, boy, or guy. It is a simpler way to refer to all people who are binary male. So that just means like a dude, right? Except it's a word that no one understands. So like they say, excuse me, what? what? And then you say, oh, I'm sorry, I, maybe you don't know. And then you get to explain it. Yeah, so you're more interesting. That's another thing about all of this. You know, other people are boring basic types. And that's also there in the demi. They're muggles, wizards and They're muggles. muggles. And and. But they're also they're people who are just walking stereotypes and they're people whose, you know, sexuality is just on and off like a switch. There's no... They're your parents. They're your parents. Yeah, which is why I do hope that a lot of middle-aged women start to identify as non-binary because that'll bring it all to an end faster than anything. <laughs> uh, Helen Joyce, thank you for joining us on the Quillette podcast. And uh, just to repeat, for those who are interested in learning more, go to thehelenjoyce.com or follow Helen on Twitter at hjoycegender. And 
Please also remind us the organization to which you devote much of your time these days. So I'm now on leave from The Economist to devote my time to partly writing, but also to campaigning for a group that's about a year old now in Britain called Sex Matters, which campaigns for the places where sex matters in law and everyday life, that we can be clear about it, we can talk about it, we can stand up for our sex-based rights, all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.